Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, we are in the third week of a series uh, in studying the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is a statement of Christian beliefs uh, that unites us as the people of God and as Christians across time and across different worship expressions. Uh, The Creed has been uh, a historic anchor of belief for the church uh, for thousands of years, and so we felt like it would be helpful for us to begin to uh, study this creed for the purpose of really recognizing not only that it has a place in our corporate worship together, uh, but that the creed also has a place in our personal practice of faith. And so my goal in each week of this series uh, is to really not just explain uh, the, the foundational truths that are being communicated through the creed, uh, but rather to uh, shed light on how it can really be uh, beneficial for us to, to recite the creed uh, as part of our own personal faith practice. Uh, but so far, what we've learned is we've learned that God is, is intensely personal uh, and unendingly powerful. There's no end to his power, uh, and he is uh, so concerned and, and uh, personal in our lives. Uh, last week, what we learned is that we must hold together then logic and mystery in our practice of faith. Uh, that we need to hold these two things together, that, both, that faith is, is both uh, logical, it makes sense, we can wrap our minds around it, uh, and yet at the very same time, faith has a mystery to it, uh, that there's a mysterious part to it. And we need to be able to hold these two together and in tension with one another. Uh, otherwise, we'll feel like we just have God all figured out. And if we feel like we have God all figured out, we'll either write him off or try to manipulate him for our own ends and our own purposes. Uh, And rather what we learned is that kind of holding these two together, both logic and mystery, allows us to enter into uh, adoration and worship of God. Today what we want to look at is we want to look at the second confession regarding Jesus Christ. The way that the the creed is organized is a statement about God and then a whole section about who Jesus is, really just pointing us to the fact that Jesus is central to our faith and our belief. And then some ending statements uh, about the church and about our practices of faith. And so today we're going to look at the second confession regarding Christ, uh, which is this. And then I'll invite you uh, to, to say the creed with me together. Uh, but the, sec- the one we're going to be looking at today is, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. It is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, so that's what we're going to be studying today. Uh, but let's, uh, before we jump into that, let's recite the creed this morning together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You know, the true story of Jesus Christ uh, is the greatest story ever told. 
It has inspired uh, the worship of millions of people across thousands of years. Parents have passed on this gospel story to their children. Preachers have proclaimed the story from their pulpits. Evangelists have shared the story over coffee. Musicians have written the story in melody and instrumentation. And to me, one of the most compelling truths of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who is is God-made flesh, can also identify with us and our experience of life. As we head into the Advent season, there's uh, the, the most compelling thing to me about Christmas and Advent uh, is the fact that the God of the universe, who had the power to create all that is with only the sound of his voice and the movement of his breath, that this God somehow identifies with me and my own experience of life. Uh, this is a profound truth of the gospel. And you might say, well, how do I know that, uh, or on what grounds do I say that, that God knows what it's like uh, to be in sort of the, the everyday detail and minutia of life? Uh, well, the reason that I know that is because this line that we're studying today says, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, and I think there's this one universal truth for us that all of us experience hardships in life. Uh, all of us experience things like bad news from the doctor, maybe difficulty in a friendship or relationship, uh, maybe a bad grade on an assignment or in a subject. All of us experience hardships like getting sick, We've all gone through these things. In fact, uh, if you look at your notes insert, the very first question that I want to call to your attention for purpose of reflection is, uh, can you recall a difficult time in your life? And and for some of us, this will be very, very easy, right? It's like, well, we might be going through one right now. And we certainly have a whole catalog of things by which to reflect on based on that question. Recall a difficult time in your life. But we together confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And when we're doing that, when we say out loud this confession that Jesus suffered, what we're doing is we are recognizing the fact that Jesus knows what it's like to experience that same hardship. That whatever feelings we get, whatever reaction we have, uh, whether it's sadness or disappointment or frustration or anger to the difficulty that we have in our life, Jesus is familiar with that. He knows what it's like to walk through that, to have those emotions, uh, and to be going through that difficult time. And yet, we, the, the truth of the gospel doesn't just stop there, that Jesus is, is familiar with uh, what it's like to have hardship, uh, but, but as the Son of God, who is both God and human, fully God and fully man, we have in Jesus Christ not only one who, who can identify with us, but we also have in Jesus Christ a tremendous helper, one who can walk with us in the midst of that difficult situation, that, that regardless of the nature of that situation, he can provide comfort and peace and strength. And so after asking you to reflect on a difficult time in your life, then there's simply two questions. During that time, how was Jesus with you and how did he help you? Now, we've written these questions to be friendly for uh, the smallest among us today. Uh, But I think there's value in, regardless of your age, just taking the time to reflect on that very thing. What is a difficult time in your life? And what are the evidences in which you can see Jesus present with you, helping you in the midst of those things 
And then you also get a really fun yellow box to write it in, right? So it's not just added, it's, it's, it's a reflection with an added bonus. <laughs> and so we, we, we begin with this idea that Jesus suffered. He knows what it's like to sort of walk through the disappointments of life and the hardships of life. But the creed goes on to say that Jesus was crucified, that he died, and then was buried. And this, these three things, Jesus crucified, died, and buried, give us the picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this picture of Jesus on the cross is, in fact, the primary image of the Christian message. Uh, the cross has become for us uh, the central image of our faith. Uh, we put it in the center of our sanctuaries. Uh, we put it on the back of our cars and we hang it around our necks. Uh, the, the cross is absolutely central to the gospel message. And we get that, that imagery here in the creed. Jesus crucified, died, and then buried. But the primary truth that is being conveyed in the, the imagery of the cross is this truth that Jesus bore our sin. That Jesus bore our sin. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, again referring to Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we have been healed. Jesus' death on the cross, in other words, was God's way of absorbing all the sin in the world so that sin would no longer have the final word in our life. But Jesus bore our sin. That, that's kind of a, um, that's an abstract concept. Uh, what does it mean for Jesus to, to bear our sin together? Well, what it means is that all of the wrong stuff that you've ever done and the icky feeling that you get after you've done it has been taken up by Jesus Christ. Let me say it to you this way. Uh, the icky feeling that you get, let's call that Guilt. That icky feeling that you get after you know that you've done something wrong. Let's call that feeling guilt. Jesus took on our guilt, the guilt of our sins, so that when we do something wrong, we don't have to live with that guilty feeling now and forever, but we can actually ask for forgiveness and have the peace of God come into our hearts. And I see this play out not only in my own life, but in the life of my kids. As I see them live with sort of that icky feeling after doing something wrong, uh, then when we offer forgiveness, I can almost see the peace of God come over their faces. And, and so in light of that, we, I want to ask and, and encourage you again to reflect on another thing. I want you to recall a time when you got the icky feeling after doing something wrong. Icky feeling, that's the theological term. Recall a time when you got an icky feeling after doing something wrong, but then I want you to think about how did you feel after asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And this, by the way, is, is central to our, our shared life together. That God has bound us together in a common life. And so central to the message of Jesus is that we have been forgiven by God, so then we also might also extend forgiveness to one another. And that is, in fact, the power of forgiveness. That whether you have sinned or whether someone has sinned against you, Christ offers us peace in, in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of, of situations where forgiveness is warranted. 
And so forgiveness, peace, and understanding come from knowing that there is a perspective other than my own. But this, this uh, imagery of Jesus crucified, dead, and buried begins to, to give value and credence to the titles that he was given earlier in the creed of Lord and Christ. In fact, we talked about these, these titles last week that, that uh, Jesus uh, is his, his common name, uh, but he's given these titles to help us understand the fullness of his identity and his place in our life. And so the creed says we believe in Jesus Christ and he's the only son of God, our Lord. Christ and Lord are titles to help us fully understand who Jesus is and the place that Jesus has in our life. And so last week we looked at how Lord means present and sovereign over all. And then Christ means the anointed one or the long-awaited Messiah. And it is actually on the cross that Jesus fully lives into these titles. If you take away the, the, if you take away the cross and the resurrection, all you have in history is a, a guy who had, had really good teaching and was a great moral teacher. And so his, his titles of, of Christ and Lord are, are lived into on the cross and through the resurrection. So that in taking on our sin, he becomes the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And it is, he, he becomes Lord and sovereign over all. That, that uh, this idea of Jesus dying on the cross, bearing our sin, uh, entering into death, overcoming death through the resurrection, and then being ascended into heaven is all about Jesus, how, how Jesus becomes king and sovereign and Lord over all. That it is, it is the process of emptying himself out so that he might again be raised up over sovereign, to be sovereign over all. And so in taking on our sin, he becomes Christ. And then he brings justice to our disordered lives by not holding our sin against us. It's a beautiful, beautiful message. And when we, when we grab a hold of this idea that Jesus is both Christ and Lord, he is both Lord and Christ, we begin to understand that Jesus in history is not just a, a good example for us to follow. Yes, he certainly is that, but he's much more than that. And Jesus also isn't just a, a motivator for us. Uh, he isn't just someone who we look at his life and his teachings and then we find ourselves motivated to live a, more, uh, a higher moral life. That is in fact the case, but Jesus is more than that. We need to understand that, that we shouldn't just stop at our understanding of Jesus as, as uh, example or as motivator, but we really need to grab a hold of the fact that Jesus is in fact Savior. In fact, if you're following along, this is a fill in the blank. Jesus is our Savior. What this ultimately means then is that we need to understand our own brokenness before God, our own need for the Savior. Uh, that, we don't, we, that we need something more than just a good example to follow. If, if all we needed was a good example to follow, then we would put Jesus out there. Oh, look at his life. He's, got, he's a great example, a great moral teacher. And so now through all of my own personal effort, I just go and live that way. It's, very quite, it's, it's actually quite simple. If all we needed was a motivator, then we just look at the life and the teaching of Jesus and we say, oh, that is very inspiring. Love your enemies. Go the extra mile. All of these things that Jesus teaches and it motivates us. And then we just say, oh, all I needed was some external motivation. Now I'm going to go and live a moral life. And that would be all that we needed. 
And there's certainly a, a point of, to that that is good and valid, that we need an example. We need Jesus to motivate us. But beyond all of that, we need a Savior. We need one who, who can somehow empower us through his Spirit to live in the way that he's called us to live. That, that it isn't just enough, sort, sort of our, our own personal effort. And kids, I especially want you to hear this. That, that, that following Jesus isn't just about sort of following the rules by your own personal effort, but rather it's about entering into relationship with Jesus so that he can give us power to live the way that we should. So that we can be a friend to the kids at school who don't have any friends. And just on our own, we might not want to do that, but with Jesus living through us and in us, then we can have the power to do that. And so Jesus is not just a good example or just a good motivator for us. He is those things, but he's much more than that. Jesus is our Savior. And what the cross then becomes is not just a a symbol of motivation or a symbol of, of, of high morality, but the cross actually becomes the symbol of his love. Again, that's a fill in the blank. The cross is the symbol of his love for us. That Jesus so deeply loves us that he bore our sin upon the cross that we might follow him, enter into relationship with him, be empowered by him to live in the way which we should. And Jesus does that all because he loves us intensely. And so today we need to understand our need for the Savior and also the love of the cross that is demonstrated on the cross. In fact, John chapter 15, verse 13, and you can listen and fill in the blank. This is your next fill in the blank there in the blue box. John chapter 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so if you're following me along, the fill in the blank is greater. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's, the second fill in the blank, life for one's friends. Jesus on the cross has demonstrated for us incredible, infinite, unending love. In fact, in our previous series, as we were walking through Hosea, one of the central themes that we kept returning to over and over again was what we called the unending love of God. And so he is, his love is absolutely without end in our life. And then we come across this, uh, this interesting statement, he descended to the dead. Um, and there's been a lot of debate throughout history as to why the creed includes this or, or why this statement is even here. There is some scriptural evidence uh, or, or uh, scriptural reference to Jesus entering into the place of the dead. Uh, Hades uh, is, is a Greek word for the place of the dead. Uh, but in short, what this really means, what, what the, the weight that this carries in the creed is that it's trying to demonstrate for us it's affirming for us that Christ was fully dead before being raised from the dead. Uh, He was fully dead before being raised from the dead. And, And perhaps that's there because some of the earliest stories that were being told in light of the rumor of resurrection, right? So if, if you and I, if you and I were to time travel back to right after the resurrection of Jesus and, and the conversations happening among the followers of the way of Jesus, 
some of the conversation would be what really happened here. And some of the things that we would be hearing from outside of the followers of Jesus would be things like he wasn't really dead, he was just sedated, or he, he never really died, but the disciples just kind of took his body. There were lots of these kinds of rumors going around. And so as, as we together, as a body of believers, were trying to come up with what do we want to stake our, our faith on? What do we really want to unify us in terms of belief? We would include a statement that said that would have indicated Jesus was really actually dead. That when we talk about resurrection, what we're talking about is a, is a new bodily life. That what, which was dead has been completely brought back to life. And so this statement, while it seems odd to us, makes perfect sense given it, its sort of historical narrative in which the creed was being put together. It was a way of saying Jesus tasted the fullness of death and then overcome it or overcame it. Does that make sense? And so that brings us then to the truth and the beauty of resurrection, this profession that on the third day he rose again. And what resurrection does is it affirms and it verifies everything that was accomplished on the cross. That the work of of Jesus Christ in our life, the bearing of our sin, the overcoming of all of these things, the work was accomplished on the cross, but then the resurrection then verifies and affirms all of that work. It gives it validity, and it says this in fact was accomplished. But resurrection does something else. And this is what I want you to hear this morning. Resurrection doesn't just affirm and verify all the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but resurrection also demonstrates a foundational truth of the message of the gospel and the character of God. And it is this. Resurrection shows us that God makes all things new. Resurrection shows us that God makes all things new. Listen to the cadence of the creed. He was crucified, died, buried. He descended to the dead. Right? It's like nailing down again and again and again. This is what happened with Jesus on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose again. See, what the creed does is it nails down on the fact that Jesus died in order to shine a, a light on the, on, the beauth, on the truth and beauty. Beauth is a combination of truth and beauty. Just, so that, just in case you're taking notes and need a little shorthand, anytime I say beauth, not booth, beauth, it's truth and beauty. The truth and beauty of the resurrection in light of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so what, what, what it's saying is that God can fill even death with new life. That God can fill even death with new life. And since God can reverse death, then anything that seems or feels dead can be made new again. And so the resurrection demonstrates to us that God makes all things new. That's the beauty of God and it gives us a glimpse into the character of God. That whatever seems or whatever feels dead can be brought back to life in the narrative of the gospel. And what this ultimately leads us to is hope, right? If if God can make all things new, and if things that feel and seem dead can be brought back to new life because of the character of God and his, his mission to make all things new, then we have no reason not to hope. 
In fact, we have every reason in the world to hope and to rest on the fact that all is not lost. There's a, a band that I love called The Brilliance. And if you don't know The Brilliance, uh, you should become familiar with their music. It is absolutely gorgeous music, rich uh, lyrics. Uh, I, I just cannot get enough of The Brilliance. Uh, they have a new album coming out. This is not a commercial. Uh, but they do have a new, a new album coming out. And the, the title of the album is All Is Not Lost. And I just think given the like, social landscape of our culture right now, I think that's a really, really important message for the church to hold on to. All is not lost. There is reason to maintain hope. In fact, one of the most scandalous claims of Christianity and the gospel is that there is always reason to hold on to hope. When all logic has been lost, when all logic points to the opposite, the most scandalous claim of Christianity is that there is reason to hope. And I think that the gospel message is a message of tremendous hope. And then finally, since God makes all things new, what resurrection does is it refocuses our hope beyond heaven to new creation. One of the mistakes that I think that um, we have made is we've placed all of our stake and all of our hope in this thing called heaven, which, which we tend to think about as ethereal, uh, disembodied, sort of out there, spirits floating around. Maybe you get a halo and a white robe and a harp. Um, but but, but heaven, heaven is, is this very sort of intangible thing. And we place all of our hope and our stake in that. And, and what I want to say is that resurrection refocuses our hope beyond sort of that ethereal, spiritual, disembodied hope to an actual new creation. That, that what God is, is doing in the world, what God intends to, to ultimately bring us to is a new physicality where not only is creation itself made brand new, but our bodies are made new. And in fact, the, the creed talks about this. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, what that doesn't mean, it, it doesn't say we believe in the floating off of the soul. No, it says we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so all throughout Christian history, what the church has affirmed for thousands of years is that God is concerned and God is, is, is uh, involved in that which is tangible and physical. And that our ultimate hope is not sort of this, this floating off existence somewhere out there, but rather our ultimate hope is all things made new, creation and our bodies. That a new sort of physicality and a new physical world, creation, made brand new. And actually, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very first evidence of that. Without resurrection, we would have no reason to believe that God can make all things brand new with a new physicality. But, but Jesus, in his resurrection, gives us the, the first the first glimpse, the first evidence of this new world. In other words, the, the resurrection of Jesus is a signpost pointing us to what God ultimately wants to do, not only for those who, who die in him, but for all of creation. And so resurrection, yes, affirms the work on the cross, 
but it also points us to the truth and the character of God that he wants to make all things new. And if we believe that and we hold on to that, then that ultimately leads us to an unshakable hope that refocuses our hope beyond heaven and into new creation. And I really don't know of anything that illustrates this better than C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. Um, I am ashamed to tell you that as a pastor, I did not read the Chronicles of Narnia until about the last year. Um, I know. I'll, I'll give you one second to look at me with judgmental eyes. Okay, very good. Um, uh, but in the last year, I, I felt like, you know, I really want to read these uh, classic, classic books and stories uh, with my kids. And so Jaden and I sat down over the summer and uh, I would read out loud to her the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, just absolutely captured by these stories. Uh, but, but nothing captured my imagination like the last couple chapters of The Last Battle. Uh, because it so perfectly illustrates our hope of something absolutely brand new. That isn't out there or disembodied, but rather this very physical uh, newness. And so in the final book of Chronicles of Narnia, Peter, Lucy, and Edmund have returned to Narnia through a big door. Now they are surprised uh, because they didn't know that they would ever return, but the, here they find themselves in this strange new land. And I want to read a portion of this to you. And um, during sound check, uh, I read such a long piece of this that someone said, is, this, is that the whole sermon this morning? Um, <laughs> And I said, don't tempt me. Um, so, but this is a lengthy passage uh, from the last battle, but I feel like just so captures uh, our hope of God's new creation. So, so here it is, the last uh, few pages, or the last chapter. Not the entire last chapter. Here's a portion of the last battle. Here we go. It still seemed to be early, and in the morning freshness, and the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look around and to look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful, but partly also because there was something about it which they could not understand. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere where we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? It would have been a, a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. For look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like that blue on those mountains in our world. Is it not Aslan's country, said Tyrion? Not like Aslan's country on top of the mountain beyond the eastern end of the world, said Jill, because I've been there. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like something in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and those big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see in, from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Well, yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. Well, I don't think those are the ones so very, like anything, so very much like anything in Narnia, said Lucy. Uh, but look there. And then she pointed southward to their left. And everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they are exactly alike. Look, there's Mount Pier with its forked head, and there's a pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. 
Suddenly, Farsight, the eagle, spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Beaver's Dam, the Great River, Care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead, for this is Narnia. But how can that be, said Peter? For Aslan had told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and yet here we are. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said that you would never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia that you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and will always be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real real world. So you need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy, for all of old Narnia that mattered, all of the dear creatures have all been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as the real thing is from a shadow or as walking life is from a dream. And then skipping a little section. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. For the new one was a deeper country where every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. And I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn then who summed up everything that they were feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground. He neighed and then he cried. I have come home at last, for this is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life. And though I never knew it until now, the reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. And so come further up and come further in. This, my friends, is what I consider to be a beautiful picture of what God intends to do. That God's ultimate hope for us is is not a disembodied existence somewhere far up in the sky, but rather God's intention for us is to make all things new. And resurrection is in fact the first evidence of God's new creation. What resurrection does is it affirms our hope. And it affirms that our hope is real. The last thing I want to point out on your notes insert is a talking point for you to take home. And I hope that you'll talk about this around the lunch tables today, around the dinner tables this week as a family. But the talking point is this. Based on what I read from the last battle, how does the end of that story help us to understand heaven? How does it help us to understand what is the foundation of our hope? in Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. And so we believe in a Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and he descended to the dead. But on the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And next week, we'll continue then with the third confession about Jesus Christ, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray, and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence in this place.
Thank you, God, for speaking to us and giving us the certainty of our hope that as we look at the cross, Father, we see that it is empty because you have been resurrected from the dead and you are right here among us through your spirit. And so, Lord, give us hope. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness that you offer to us. May we be certain and assured that in the midst of our brokenness, we are forgiven. And that because of Jesus, we've been reconciled to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We give you praise today for reminding us again of this central message of the gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.